This is a Rocket Audio production. Well, it's a fun edition of Rocket Fuel this week because I actually cry. I think you won't notice, but it's a really heavy subject, but I think it's fascinating. I was introduced to somebody called Amy Batelli recently, and she's responsible for the corporate partnerships at Helen and Douglas House. And Helen and Douglas House is a children's hospice or a collection of hospices. Amy and I have a really good conversation. We talk about what brands can get from partnerships with organisations like a children's hospice. But the best bit, and I don't think Amy will mind me saying, is we're also joined by Emma Jordan. And unlike our listeners, who are, you know, media marketing people, maybe tech people, looking out for youth culture and youth marketing, Emma's got a proper job. Emma's a youth and transition worker. She works with children who are at the end of their lives. She works with the families that are around them. So have a listen when we talk to Emma Jordan and Amy Batelli of Helen and Douglas House, and we ask them for their rocket fuel. So... This week's Rocket Fuel is a special one because joining us are the Corporate Partnerships Manager and the Youth and Transition Worker from Helen and Douglas House. A big welcome to Amy Batali and Emma Jordan. Thank you so much for being this week's guests on Rocket Fuel. Hello. Hi. So, Emma, let's start with you because you have the title of Youth and Transition Worker. And I bet our audience of people that work in media and marketing, people that haven't ever come anywhere near having a proper job, won't know necessarily what a youth and transition worker does or indeed is. Tell us what it is and tell us how you've ended up at Helen and Douglas House. Oh, wow. I'm not sure I can particularly give much insight into that one myself. Um, (laughs) So um, I'm going to start the other way around, actually, and say how I ended up at Helen Douglas House. Um, so I've been on the books for about 15, 16 years, um, started on the care team at Douglas House, which sadly closed a few years ago. Um, and when that did, um, I the role for youth and transition worker was advertised. Um, and that is something that I've kind of been wanting for about the last five years. So amongst all the sadness, it was actually a very good thing for me. Um, so it was a brand new role um, and I've really enjoyed it so far. So youth and transition. So it's kind of like a two part role. Um, so the youth side of things is about the young people that we support um, and supporting them in a social fashion. Um, so it's about emotional well-being, helping with self-esteem, building confidence, having fun with your peers. Uh, So one of the things that I had been doing up until March was doing uh, an every other month youth group um, using the old Douglas House building, which was really accessible. Um, And we had, so the youth group was open to our teenagers who have got the capacity and the want and the need to be sociable with other people. Uh, So they would arrive at about 10 o'clock and leave at about four o'clock and we would all get together and have a really, really nice sociable time. Lunch was provided. Um, We'd play board games, we'd have quizzes in the afternoons, uh, did scavenger hunts. We even went down the Cowley Road because we're based in Oxford for a little outing to the ice cream parlour. So that was really, really cool. Um, And I also do one-to-one support. So if someone's having a little bit of a harder time 
or needs a little bit of emotional support or somebody else outside the family to talk to, then I can go to the houses or schools or meet them in house for kind of like one-to-one sessions. Um, and we just chat and play games and I try to get to the bottom of the problems if there are any, but sometimes it's just for somebody to have a bit of a chat. And then the transition side of things. Sorry, was there a question? I was just going to say, uh, having a chat is often the most important thing. Am I right? It's about about humanising it. Absolutely. And actually, especially important at this time. Um, So I've had a few more uptakers for uh, one-to-one in the last month or so because people aren't accessing school because of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just that other person to just come and chill out with, which is really lovely. Um, and then the transition side of things. So a lot of things change between support for youngsters with disabilities when they turn 18. So they would be in the support services of children, social workers, and it's about supporting them through the changes that happen turning into an adult. So um, benefits change, uh, our support for respite at Helen House finishes at 19. So it's about helping people to try and find alternatives and um, talking to professionals, their social workers, making sure there's a smooth change from children's to adults. Health is incorporated. Uh, if people want to do education, further education or get a job or whether they want to be at home, whether they want carers, whether they want their parents supporting them. There's, it's, it's quite a big... Um, thing to broach (laughs) and the list is endless Uh, but it's good fun and Amy what about you how did you get involved in uh, this organization and and what is your background oh my goodness Uh, so my background is very colorful I've come from so I I, um, studied in performing arts uh, and then did a bit of child entertainment some theater work and then um I just ended up um seeing a job for a local hospice helping with the fundraising and I thought actually that sounds really good so started there and then started working in the corporate partnerships at that hospice and then moved over to manage corporate partnerships at Helen and Douglas House so yeah that's how I kind of just fell into <laughs> into the role but it's one that I absolutely love doing yeah um and yeah, it's basically me working with companies who um, either have reached out with a partnership idea um, or someone has come to us and said, we'd, we'd like to partner with you, um, you know, what are the options? And it's basically the hospice and a company coming together to not only support the work that the hospice does, but also to kind of look at how a partnership could help the company with things like, staff morale through fundraising activities and challenges um or if you've got csr objective we can help kind of get the company to take some of those off so um yeah it's really interesting and i work with a variety of companies and i I think in the in recent years companies have really just come to the forefront of supporting charities and that's just been an amazing thing to see um, in terms of the work that you guys do, you're obviously in, I mean, more, more so you perhaps, Emma, you're in a, you're in a relatively pressurised environment where emotions are running high. What, yeah. what are the qualities that you look for in people that are working around you 
in order to to achieve results in in those sort of situations what is is there a commonality that everybody has or is everybody bringing something different that's a really tricky question um <laughs> patience i think is the big thing that springs to mind um the ability to communicate really well and that's not just verbal um but picking up on body language and expressions and that kind of thing um, and really being able to empathize with your colleagues and your families um, because we work in an environment but we're not part of our families day-to-day routine so we only get snippets of their lives yeah I understand so yeah so kind of like being able to like relieve a bit of a pressure for a long weekend or for four days during the week is a really big thing for the families because their lives are so much bigger than us. And Amy, when you're almost, because we've kind of got two sides to the same organisation here, which is what makes this fascinating. We've got kind of the people talking to the real people to, to, you know, get people through potentially, or in fact, almost always life-changing situations. And then Amy, on on the kind of the corporate side or on the business side, what you're doing is potentially you're bringing a bit of, a bit of good and a bit of good to to a bigger corporate organization i mean you've obviously got to communicate the hard work that the hospice does to the brands that you're looking to talk to and how is that as a as a as a role because you have to paint a picture of the hard work that you're doing and also you want it to work really well for the brands that you're talking to as well yeah i think that I think the biggest thing is the the stories that come from Helen and Douglas House because I mean you just have to hear one story to want to help in some way um, as I'm sure most people would if if they heard um, but I think my main my main role is communicating to companies how big of a difference they could make to the lives of families um, right. just by so, you, you know for for instance some some companies not only fundraise, they kind of have a target maybe over three years of funding part of the service. So maybe funding the um, play team or um, whatever it may be. But others actually look to offer a service. So can they help us with training, upskilling part of the team? Or So it's, it's about me going out and identifying companies that could really make a difference. Um, I mean, most companies can offer something and, and it really just is about I mean, most pe- most companies that we speak to are so brilliant in terms of s- sort of working with me to look at how we can work together. Um, yeah, so it, it's good. And, and, and it's funny because a lot of people don't like coming to the hospice initially. And then as soon as they sort of <laughs> a company comes around, they're like, oh, it's like a school. <laughs> and it's really funny because I think everyone thinks it's such a sad place. And yeah. it, of course, sad things happen there. But it's a it's a place where memories are made um and you can't have memories in a sad place so it's full it's it's really light it's really fun it's full of color and the people there are amazing so as soon as you I mean obviously COVID stopped that but when people come to see the hospice that's when they go okay this is absolutely something we need to help so yeah 
I want to come back to you, Emma, just with another kind of another question on, if you like, on on how you're when you're talking to the families and when you're when you're talking to the individuals in the hospice. Um, I, I, I want to kind of focus on whether things have changed over the time that you've been doing this job. So do you now talk to the families in a different way than you once used to? Uh, do you see what I mean? Do, do, is this an iterative process of things always changing or actually the, the, the way that it happens or has that always been the same? It's, it's really interesting question actually, because um, the way you talk to people in general hasn't really changed, but the age of the people that I'm now talking to has changed. And therefore that kind of changes more about your language that you might use. Um, so Douglas House was um, young adults, so 16, 18, up to 35, 40. Um, and I'm now working with teenagers. Um, and also at Douglas House, it was very much talking with our clients, guests, as they were called, with now patients, as an adult. So you were talking to them and... Um, discussing their health needs with them directly and now because our children are under 18 and not deemed kind of responsible for their own actions yet but it's a learning process so they're beginning to build that confidence and so you're now not necessarily just talking to the young people but you're also needing to talk to the families so that was a real shift for me actually a few years ago and getting used to involving everybody. But my main focus is talking to the young people. And um, so I think the language that I use is probably less adult than uh, it might've been, but you learn, everyone's individual. So you learn what stage they're at and what language to use. So everybody's different. So yeah, it's it's a difficult one to answer. I understand. Things. Yeah, and then Amy, I. Just focusing on in terms of, if you like, you and, and how to get the best out of you and how you like to get the best out of people. How do you like to be managed and what you like as a manager? Uh, well, I'm very lucky. I have a very good manager at Helen Douglas House who has um, really helped this year with my personal development. So really focusing on actually how am I approaching companies and how can we succeed in in partnering with the right companies so um she's put me during COVID-19 we kind of looked at um training and webinars that really focused on how to continue doing my job um through the pandemic rather than just shutting everything down and just going no like we need to just put everyone on furlough um so I love being managed by someone who is open-minded and someone who actually rather than saying oh my gosh shut down we're panicking you know my manager actually just turned around and said what can we do you know if we stand still nothing will progress so um yeah we've, we've changed a lot of the ways that we work now and we've had more success in the way we're working almost now than we were before so um yeah that's that's the way I like to get um to be managed but as a manager, um, again, I kind of, I've, I've never, I hate micromanaging, so I would never be a person who, who does that. Um, but I just like to encourage, um, always give feedback um, and just communicate human beings, a human being. Um, I, 
you know, yes, you're managing someone doesn't mean you're, you know, you've got to be bossy. So yeah, it's just about helping that person progress and hitting objectives as a team. Okay. And then I want to ask one more question in this section, particularly around uh, Helen and Douglas um, House, first of all. (laughs) I want to ask um, a question about Helen and Douglas House. I normally ask at this moment, professionally, what are you known for? And I would like you to ask that question, Emma and Amy, but I'd also like you to let our listeners know what are Helen and Douglas House known for? So what are you known for and what do you think Helen and Douglas House is known for? Emma, question to you first, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Known for, like, if somebody were to describe me in three words, what would they say? Yeah, exactly, in the professional capacity, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, My boss, my line manager, I should say, um, I hope affectionately calls me Tigger. Um, so I think you can probably get an idea of me from that. So I'm quite bubbly and bouncy. Um, nothing is too small or too big to deal with. Um, and I, I just like having fun and being silly, but always in a professional in a, in a professional manner, of course. Um, <laughs> Helen and Douglas House is known for fun, being caring, creating a family and a relaxed environment and a supportive environment. And Amy, would you add anything to that for mm-hmm. Helen and Douglas House? And what about you? <laughs> for Helen and Douglas House, I'd say it's it's just a really vital lifeline for families and a safe zone. So I just think it's such a... I don't know how to describe it, just a place of love. Um, So, yeah, yeah, I'd call it um, just a lifeline. Um, It's difficult to pinpoint. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Um, And I think as a professional, um, I'd like to think of myself as um, hardworking and efficient, uh, but also fun. I think I I don't like to be too serious. I don't think I have the ability of being very serious, so... (laughs) Yeah, that would be me. So I'm still here with Emma Jordan and Amy Batali, who both work at Helen and Douglas House. Amy's the corporate partnerships manager. Emma is the youth and transition worker. So two sides of the same business. And I really want to kind of drill down and focus on the business in the second part of this of this conversation. Emma, let's start with you in this section, if that's all right. Tell us about the business. How old is it? How old is the hospice? Um, how long have things been uh, been happening there? Oh, God, now you've got me. Uh, you might need to edit this one out. Um, that's fine. <laughs> um, Helen House, I think, was established in 1982. Correct. Oh, phew. So I, I have had more yeah. confidence, Emma. Say that again with confidence. <laughs> I was thinking about there. this earlier that we're coming up to our 40th anniversary, which yeah. is really quite exciting. So I'm hoping that something special is going to be organised for that. Um, Douglas House was open in total, I think, for about 15, 16 years, 17 years. Yeah. Um, 
I don't, yeah, again, I don't know that off the top of my head, but that's rough time frames. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, it, in terms of, if you like, the length of service, but talk to us about the work that gets done by the, by the hospice, by the houses. Well, it, it's very important to just mention that it was the first children's hospice in the world. Yes, um, thank you, so Amy. Then it then led to um, so there's now 54 children's hospices in the UK, and um, it inspired you know those hospices and hospices internationally to open, which is amazing. But um, the work that they that the hospice does is, um, in, if I'm going to sort of bullet point it, is end of life care um, and uh, symptom management at the hospice and offering respite. So respite is probably one of the most important ones in total for the families because that's when the families come in for a break so that parents don't have to be the carer, they can just be the parent. Um, and of course, that is something that we've really tried to help with through the pandemic because we've not been able to offer respite so that the hospice remains COVID free. So at the moment, yeah. we're, that is something that we're we're finding a challenge, and we're trying to work around that to make sure that families aren't getting to the point of crisis. Um, but also, we've got the bereavement service, sibling support, which is helping the siblings that obviously are, you know, going through a really hard time um, with their sibling who is ill. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we've then got Emma's um, part of the service, which is helping the transition of of children who are going into the adult services. So. There is a very, there's a, a lot going on at the hospice. There's a lot of things happening. Um, but I mean, based mainly, as I said before, it's it's a lifeline. We're there for families if they need us. Um, and it can be in the in the hospital if they need us there, at the hospice or in their homes. So um, we do help outside so, of the hospital as well. Amy, you've kind of preempted my next question that was going to be about you've you've you brought to life a, a kind of potent cocktail of different emotions that could be happening. Mm. I did want to look, break down the kind of different journeys. You've mentioned siblings, you've mentioned parents, you've mentioned the patients themselves, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, um, how do you think the different journeys of those different people differ? What, what, what brings them the same? What, what makes them different? Who are braver? Is it the parents? Is it the kids themselves? And and do you see them being brave in different ways? I always find brave a really, I don't know, like a strange word. I don't know if, what you think, Emma, but I always think they, they've not, they they need, they have to do what they're doing. That's the yeah. life that unfortunately has chosen them. Um, and I think it's hard for the parents because they're having to watch someone they love um, live with a with a life-limiting illness and obviously there's so many different conditions that our children um are uh, diagnosed with so it's it must be i can't even imagine what it's like to be a parent who who is told that um but then obviously the children some of them have lived with that condition all their lives some of them maybe have been diagnosed later on and so that's quite hard but also i kind of Again, I can't really imagine what that must have been like as a child to be told this very grown up thing of this is, you know, you have to do this and you have to take these medicines. And sometimes you're going to have to, you know, be in bed for long periods of time. So it's it's something that I don't think anyone can imagine unless you're in the situation. But it's um, like you say, I think people coming for respite 
um, they're there. I mean, even people who they're for end of life care, they're all making memories in one way or another, whether it is that they're taking a break from caring 24 um, seven or whether they're, they're obviously for the end of their child's life, they're, they're there to make a memory. They want the memories of, of being with their child to be as happy as they can. Emma, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have not been in this position. I did lose my dear old mum nearly two years ago, but she was, you know, she was, uh, she was, um, she was 66. So, you know, it, 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 that's as much, as close as I can apply this thinking to, but I'd love to know about the human emotions. Who's doing more protecting, do you think, at the end of a child's life? Do you think the kids do it, the children are doing some protecting their families from what they're going through? Do you think families are protecting the children from what they're going through? What What's that emotional journey like? It's a roller coaster. <laughs> um, I think it very much depends on the capacity that each individual has got in understanding what's going on for them, um, because often parents do protect their children from the complete knowledge. Um, but then, of course, you've also got some very on it kids and young people who know a lot more than their parents give them credit for. Um, and they also do some protecting. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, I was going to say vicious circle, but vicious isn't the right word there. It's a, it's a loving circle rather than a vicious one. Um, making sure that everyone's okay the, the phrase you used at the beginning there was capacity for understanding or capacity to and, and and it strikes me as though that might be the most important thing of not necessarily mm. having the most detailed understanding of the process or the illness or anything like that but the the, the capacity to understand what everybody else is going through yes yeah um it's difficult really difficult to pinpoint but yes it, it it is very much about that and it's the same with anybody in life um and it's about your own um protecting yourself as well you you um, see people in states that many many other people don't emma let me ask you a question do you think there are qualities that children have that somehow we lose in adulthood? Do you think there's anything that disappears in us? Are there qualities that children have that adults don't? Oh, absolutely. Um, the innocence goes as adults. So, and you learn rules as adults about what's appropriate to say to people and what isn't. And kids learn that as they get older so the beauty of being children is the innocence that they've got in the questions that they ask um, and without the fear of asking them and those questions could be questions that the children ask each other or they could be questions that the children ask the members of of, of the team at helen and douglas house or or mm. just in their interactions with each other yeah absolutely and in terms of that camaraderie, if you like, what is the camaraderie like between the different children in the hospice 
And what's the camaraderie like between the different families? Is it is it a case of where you you can only truly look into the them in the eye if you've been through something similar or, or how does that work? What is always really lovely, um, and I, I speak from my experience from Douglas House and Helen House, the lunch times and the meal times. And sometimes in the middle of the night when you've done a night shift, so as I said, I was on the care team, so I did night shifts before, that you will, from both kind of like parental perspectives and the patient's perspectives, that you will come across um, little huddles of people who have struck up a conversation which leads to friendship and they are able to talk to people who are in the same boat very different water around them and their whole life experience is different but they're sharing their experiences as parents looking after their kids who have got a life limited condition um, and similarly with the young people um, I've seen great friendships formed um, people getting to know each other and booking their stays at the same time so that they can see their friends again. And because the, um, because the house is so accessible, it's a really, really easy way to meet up with your friends. Um, and people will organize day trips into Oxford um, with their mates who they've got to know over the years. And it's just really nice seeing those friendships develop. Um this may sound like the most incredibly trite question, but what what is success for Helen and Douglas House? Is it when you've cushioned the blow? Is it when you've given families the tools they need to get through this experience? Is it when you you, you can you know that you've made the last you've made those memories in the, in the closing stages of of a child's life? Is it all of those things? Yeah, it's fundamentally, I think it's about making a not so nice experience better. And that can be all those things that you've just said and more. Um, <laughs> you've, take... you've articulated it in a lot simpler <laughs> way, though. <laughs> yeah, e e easing the stress, lightening. Yeah. Yeah, easing the stress, lightening the load, just, yeah. It can be the simplest thing, um, offering someone a cup of tea and a tissue and space to chat, um, but it can also be about organising, um, going to, um, I can't remember what it's called, uh, going with the family to register the death of their child. Um, it can be a little thing, it can be a big thing. It's, yeah, it's just anything that makes a horrible moment in this family's life just a little bit better and easier. Final question for this time being in this section, Emma, in terms of, do you see it change families? Do you see this experience? Do you notice people being different on the other way out, whether that makes them stronger, whether that makes them, do you, do you know what I mean? Can you, can you spot a change when someone's been through a process like this? Sometimes. I, I <laughs> it, it links back, back a little bit to your question about, um, I'm, I'm kind of like thinking staff here more than families, but it does sure. kind of link in a little bit. 
um, your question about the kind of key skills. Um, I believe that everyone who works in a hospice has their own personal reason for being there. So when you get to know the people in the team, you find out what that reason is. Um, and it's definitely a link and you can then definitely see it. So you might not necessarily see it straight away, but you kind of know that everyone's there for a, their own personal reason linked with death, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. That's the kind of feeling that experience and feelings and experiences that I've had from working with the care team at least. Um, and I think for families, you would see that a lot more that you, yes, there is, there is something about the process that I'm waffling and going about no, it in a roundabout way. I'm just finding it hard to articulate it. No, um, and it's, it's, it's probably the, the most difficult thing to articulate. You've heard me struggling and floundering when you made me look foolish last time by breaking down three sentences into three <laughs> words. But <laughs> so we're, we're both, I, I suppose I'm taking some solace from the fact that you've been doing this for a long time. So, and at least I'm only um, <laughs> learning how to talk about these things. Having said, I'll move on, Emma. I do want to ask one last question about this. Yeah. And I want to take it back to the beginning where we spoke about this Tigger-like personality in you. Yeah. Um, does it, and, and I know you've spoken that you and your team all share a, a common bond and, and a, do you, how do you unwind? How do you escape this? Or is this now part of you, if you like? Oh, heck. Um... Are you pleased we turn the cameras off now? Because I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do I unwind? Um, exercise. Gin helps. Um I used to cycle um, to and from work. Um, and I remember one of the hardest shifts that I did. It was also one of the best shifts that I did. Um, cycling home at the end of the day. I think I cried all the way home. Um, and it was a good half hour journey. Um, so I, I think you develop... I, I speak from my own personal experience on this one because I know everybody is different and everybody deals with their own grief and their supported grief and how they support people very, very differently. Um, I lost where I was going. It's, we, were, we were looking at ways of how you unwind and how you cope. You mentioned yeah. exercise is key. You mentioned everybody has their own way of dealing with that grief and then the supportive grief, which is, I completely get what you mean. It's not a phrase I'd heard before, but I understand and I, I, I get it. I do understand. Yeah. Look, let's let's stop prodding and let's stop asking too many emotional questions. Mm -hmm. hey, it's, it's fine. I'm, it's just, it's just no, really hard to... Put it into words, I guess. No, no, um, I completely get that. I completely I was, get why. Yeah, yeah. I was, I when was you like, said I, gin, Emma, I thought you said gin, as in gin and tonic, and I was like, I, was like, <laughs> I, I did gin. Oh, you did it was gin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and for, the, for the record, it was gin and exercise, not the yeah, gin, it was gin and exercise, exercise together. <laughs> <laughs> How funny. <laughs> 
But I um, think I've, I've, I've remembered where I was going. So I think um, to some extent you build a protective wall around yourself um, and you don't become hardened, um, but you getting used to it makes it sound really bad. Yeah, but... I think you become resilient, don't you? Yes, think... yes. It's, it's, it's like a sponge, I guess. Mm. And there will be particular families who get through that barrier and will end up, you need to squeeze that sponge and let it all out. I guess that's me, how I deal with it. There must be families that so still... Long. There must be families that see you now, Emma, and still want to give you a, the biggest hug in the world and, and to say thank you for, for cushioning the blow and, and, and making what could have been an absolutely unbearable period of their lives, you know, just about bearable. I'd like to think so. <laughs> uh, Amy, you have, you have the, the, the tough job of almost taking these moments bringing these moments almost to a to an organization to a business and saying it was funny you mentioned about it being kind of a, a staff morale thing almost this is our business doing good mm. um that you've you've kind of got to package this up and make it a benefit to a brand yeah. um but these are incredibly serious issues and this is an incredibly good cause for any brand to come on board and help with. Mm -hmm. Is this the easiest job in the world or the hardest job in the world? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, it, it's, it's a challenge for sure. I mean, I, I love, I love a good challenge, but um, I think it's, it's the way you go about it. So successful corporate partnership managers um, will usually use um you know, look at look at the company and say, you're trying to do this as a brand. So you're trying to help people make memories. I don't know if it's a production company, maybe they're, they're help, trying to help families make memories. Well, us at the hospice, we're, we're doing that too. So why don't we work together to not only strengthen your brand, but also, you know, raise the profile of the hospice and um, maybe we could do some fundraising activities to, to raise some money, but also have some fun as as a team. And so that's where you start building that relationship. And it's, it's I think the, the strongest partnerships have a real core um, value that they can run with together. If you look at Cadbury's and AGK, which is probably one of the best partnerships I've ever seen, they took, they saw a problem um, and Cadbury's wanted to be a part of solving it. And I think that's where these incredible partnerships lie um and that's you know these partnerships will change the you know the, they will be a huge part of changing these societal problems we want there to be less lonely people in the world we want to help as many families as possible with children with life limiting illnesses and if a company can help us do that and we can help them with objectives and challenges as a company whether it be staff engagement or um, brand loyalty then I think there's yeah there's huge potential there. Amy give us an example of a successful brand collaboration or organization co partnership that you've delivered since you've been in position what, what's been crazy about it why has it worked so well? Um, one of the most recent um, companies that we have collaborated with and that this was 
in, I think it was in April. And um, so Ravensburger, who are a toy manufacturer, um, they we pitched a partnership to them um, and they have been amazing. It's grown and grown. So first of all, we did hampers. So they donated puzzles to um, some of the families who were isolating um, to offer some kind of way of, you know, encouraging time together as a family so they donated puzzles to to our families um then they went they've gone on to sponsor our race from the north pole event um which means that all the money now raised from that event is going to go to the hospice and that is a huge thing for us huge and they they are the biggest sponsor of any event so that's amazing and then we're looking now as to into the future what what else can they help us to to do and they just they really want to be a part of it and it the reason why it's such a success is they're working with us we're having regular meetings cool you know what can we do our team really want to do something you know to bring morale back so you know we're, we're going to put a team into the into the event and we're going to sponsor it and that has been just one of my favorite partnerships um, that's come out of COVID because it's really shown actually there is still things that people and companies can do. Um, Great example. Yeah, yeah, that's that's brought it to life. Um, it, you, you've touched upon some of the key things that brands and organizations get out of contributing and, and working with a with an organization like Helen Douglas House. Um, uh, what's the feedback you get? And here we are, really, what sounds particularly in light of the conversation we were having 10 minutes ago, what strikes me is a trite thing to say, but how do you measure success with a with a partnership like this? Usually we ask them that at the start of it. So what what does the end, what is the end objective of this partnership? What do we want to see when we come to the end of the partnership? um so by the end of the partnership we'll look back and you know usually we'll say wow we we thought we were going to do this and we've done xyz more than that and actually most of our partnerships do that um you know unfortunately there have been some companies that have been unable to do anything during covid because <laughs> understandably they've they've had to focus on on you know their staff and maintaining staff um but it's they, yeah, they are impossible to measure, to be fair, because they, and I think when they fed back to us, the biggest thing has been how we've stewarded them, like the, the, the account management. So those regular meetings, the, the way that we, you know, we, we want to show them the difference that they're making by partnering with us. So we do send them re regular communication to say, look at this, you know, this is something that's happened. One of our families, um, you know, we've been able to help one of these families and it's thanks to supporters like you, because it's true. I mean, if we didn't have their support and the support of the public, we, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing. And that, that is a scary thought. So, you know, you really have to um, appreciate the fact that feedback is is a huge part of what we do, because we want to make sure that we, we are continue to get these partnerships because we have to, because we have to continue to provide that service. Amy, you're in the fundraising team. Emma's in the care team. You must have the immense, the most immense amount of, and huge amount of respect for the work that the care team and that Emma does. I think the the thing as as it because obviously Emma's in the care team, yeah. Um, whereas I'm in the fundraising team, yeah. And so, from my perspective, I 
honestly just think that the hospice is such an incredible place just full of incredible people and that you know the care team I just don't think you know they just are just amazing people the things that they do and the way that they care and support families is just sensational and I, I just think you know thank god for for people like them who who can do that job because I certainly don't think I could do it. I'm still here with Emma and Amy um, from Helen and Douglas House. We've discussed their backgrounds. We've got to know the work of Helen and Douglas House and the hospice. And now we're into the rocket fuel section of our conversation. These are practical insights, practical takeaways that our audience of media marketing, youth culture, youth um, marketing types can take away and bring into their daily lives. Amy, Emma, I'm not sure who wants to go first. Why don't we ask Emma to go first? What do you know about young audiences and what's important to young audiences? What do you see as being important to the children that you talk to? Wow. <laughs> I think what's important to them is important to most people in general. Um, definitely something through my experience of working with teenagers and young adults um, is kind of societal preconceptions that because they are in a wheelchair or have got a disability that they're not seen as human beings and peoples with feelings and the need to do what everybody else wants or can do in the world. So, um, you know, they can have relationships, they can have sex, they can have jobs, they can work, they can go skiing, they can do sports, they can do whatever, as long as people have got the right mindset um, to enable people to do that. Um, I think I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there. Um, no, you haven't at all. So <laughs> I think your, your key point right at the start is what's important to them is what's important to everybody to, yep. to, take, to, to isolate youth and young people and make them somehow different to everybody is, is where things go wrong. And by yep. extension, if they have got a life limiting disease or, or if there is, you know, that, that again, that's, that doesn't preclude them from being part of the wider society. No. Absolutely. Amy, anything to add to that in terms of what do we know about young audiences and what's important to young audiences? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with just making sure that they um, they have as, as normal a life as any other young adult. Um, but yeah, I think just opening up those opportunities and making mm. sure that those opportunities are accessible to them. Um, so, you know, sometimes you're like, you know, you've got to act completely normal. Okay, well, we can't act completely normal because they, some of them are in wheelchairs and, and just like anybody, we need to make sure that opportunities are open to them as much as possible. So I think sometimes I hear people say, you know, um, I, don't, I don't even think that about them being in a wheelchair. Well, if you, if you care for someone in a wheelchair, you quickly realise how little access they have to a lot of things. So I think one of the most important things for a young audience is just to feel like they have um, equal opportunities to anybody else. Um, next question. Let's stay with you, Amy, on this. How do you think the behaviour of young people has changed? And how do you think or, or what's changed about young audiences? And what do you think will change next? 
I think um, social media and the the role it plays in mm-hmm. a young person's life uh, has has changed definitely. Um, it's made it easier for young adults to communicate with each other, but equally, obviously, it's caused some issues with maybe. I know that a lot of mental health issues have come out of social media. And I'm hoping that now, you know, social platforms, social media platforms are taking responsibility for that. Um, and they are going to be putting into place um, ways of making sure that these young adults aren't influenced to the point where they feel their life is worthless. And actually, you know, social media should be a place where you can access ideas and inspiration rather than seeing other people's lives and thinking you don't have anything. So, um, yeah, I think social media is a massive one. Uh, uh, Emma, would you, would you agree? I mean, in terms of things that have changed the way that young adults, children behave and, and what will change next, do you think it's a very social media centric response that has shifted how they behave? Yeah, I think so. This is the kind of point where you go, wow, back in my day um, (laughs) and how things have changed since, you know, we were all teenagers. Um, I think social media and technology has made a huge difference. But I also think that there's more (laughs) technology and stuff coming into play, which will continue to have an impact. uh, kind of like virtual reality and kind of like completely absorbing yourself in um, games and things like that. Um, the, the one thing that sticks in my mind actually that's had a real shift is that people tend to now take more, people are beginning to listen to the youth and young people that are around today. So um, climate change, et cetera, et cetera, was never on my radar. Um, and actually kids are probably a little bit more proactive in the big things that matter um, and are taking that forward. So um, LGBT, Black Lives Matter, climate change, lots of things are now being activated by young people, which is something that I don't think was such a big thing when I was a teenager. So from that respect, I think it's looking good. Yeah. And in terms of talking to children and young people, who gets it wrong and who gets it right? You don't have to name names, but <laughs> if, there are, if there's any commonality, if there, it's, it's, it's funny, uh, towards the beginning of the conversation, Emma, you, you mentioned that there are a lot of children that are clued up and, and smart beyond where their yeah. parents even see they are. So... Yeah, who gets it right and who gets it wrong when talking to these audiences? I think that would be all about perspective. I like to think that everyone can be right and everyone can be wrong and that people can find a way of getting through the differences together. Um, and then Amy, unless you want to come in on that, if there is one takeaway from our conversation today that you want our audience to walk away with, um, feel free to articulate that for us. It might be something that's been in our conversation or because my questions haven't been good enough, it might be something else that you wanted to bring <laughs> to the attention of the audience that are listening. 
I think mainly just that, um, you know, never think that your support of a cause is too small. Um, even a share or a like on social media or just following a cause on social media um, is a huge thing. You're raising the profile of that cause. So never think that making a difference has to be giving a thousand pounds to a charity. That's not it at all. Just do what you can in your capacity. And, you know, hopefully if everyone does their little bit, gradually we'll get into, you know, we'll, we'll live in a world where supporting these causes is just part of life. And um, yeah, I'm, I've got hope for a, for a very love, loving future. Um, Emma, did you want to have the last word? Is there one takeaway you would like our audience to go away and think of? I'm um, not sure think... I like the idea of the last word, but um, mm. I, th I think it goes back a little bit to what Amy touched on. Um, a lot of people who I talk with about the jobs that we all do at the organisation that we all work at, which is a hospice, people always tend to pull a bit of a oh gosh, hospice, and they automatically assume death, dying, sad times, um, shortened lives, et cetera, et cetera. But I like to embrace the idea that actually, irrelevant of the length of the life, it is still a life, and that that should be happy and full of memories and good times and sad times um, and focus on to focus on the good that the hospice offers our families and young people. Okay, let me conclude very quickly. And I would just say, um, it's been an incredible chat, not our typical episode of Rocket Fuel, but an amazing one. Emma and Amy, I can't thank you enough. If people want to find out more about the incredible work that you guys do, where can they go? Where can they find out more about it? So you can go to the Helen Douglas House website. Um, so that will be, so that's helenanddouglas.org.uk and you can find out all about us on there. Oh, and give us a follow on social media as well. Thank you, Emma, Amy. It's been a real pleasure to have you as this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Isn't Emma Jordan amazing? Isn't Amy amazing? Isn't Helen and Douglas House amazing? To be able to speak that articulately on subjects that are so close to the heart and so emotional. Let me know what you thought. Do give us feedback. I'm at James Erskine on Twitter. We are Rocket HQ across all social media. And tune in next week for some more Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.